Hello, and welcome to the Particular Baptist Podcast. I'm Daniel Vincent with my co-host, Sean Cheatham. Um, and today we have uh, some really neat topics. We're going to go through our, or start going through our Confession of Faith. That would be the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith of 1689. Um, we talked last week about confessionalism, and we didn't really intend to go through the confession then. But um, after that episode we talked, we're like, yeah, let's, let's start going through the confession. Uh, we're not going to go through it in um, necessarily a systematic way, meaning through each chapter. Um, we're going to probably pick and choose topics. And even today, we're not going to go through an entire chapter. We're going to focus on certain aspects of the chapter. Um, so yeah, uh, that's kind of the goal. We're not sure how much of the confession we'll go through yet, but um, that's our, our new series. We're going to go through the 1689 ba- uh, London Baptist Confession of Faith. Um, one thing I want to point out, um, I want to correct something I believe I said last week. Um, I had noted we were talking about um, Benjamin Keach at the 1689 um, General Conference or General Assembly of Baptist Churches, I think it was. And I had noted that, um, I think I had noted that Keach um, had brought his uh, hymn singing um, controversy. There was a hymn singing controversy at the assembly. Um, I don't believe that was true. I, I, it actually was at his church in 1689, and then um, he started a whole hubbaloo um, in particular Baptist circles, and then um, start. And then um, it was dealt with uh, later. Uh, but I just wanted to correct that, trying to make sure we're being truthful and honest in what we're saying and accurate. Um, so yeah, but that's just kind of a side note. Um, so yeah, we're going to dive right into our topics today. Um, we're going to start in chapter one of the Holy Scriptures, and Sean will kick us off today. Yeah. So uh, by way of introduction, um, just wanted to point out an interesting fact. With the Reformed confessions, they'll either start in one of two ways. The first chapter will either be on God, or the first chapter will be on Scripture. And of course, that leads to the question, well, why, why do some of the reform think that they should start with on scripture? Uh, the answer being that scripture, as we'll go through in the confession, actually is the way that we, it's the means by which we come to know God and how to be saved and what God's will is. And obviously these are central things in the uh, Christian's life. So it's important to get the means uh, by which we know all these things and guard against errors that would lead us off of what God's will is. Uh, So to start, I'm going to read uh, paragraph one, and we'll start talking about that. So paragraph one of chapter one of the Holy Scriptures. The Holy Scripture is the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving faith, or sorry, of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. Although the light of nature and the works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness wisdom and power of God as to leave men inexcusable yet are they not sufficient to give that knowledge of God and his will which are necessary unto salvation therefore it pleased the Lord at sundry times and in diverse manners to reveal himself and to declare that will that his will unto his church and afterward for the better preserving and propagating of the truth and for the more sure establishment and comfort of the church against the corruption of the flesh and the malice of Satan and of the world to commit the same holy underwriting, which make it the holy scriptures to be most necessary, those former ways of God revealing his will unto his people being now ceased. 
So uh, what were your thoughts on that, Dan? So this chapter is really, um, it's really talking about the necessity of scripture. Why is scripture necessary? And I think one, one thing to point out with regards to that is it it's contrasting between the necessity of, of scripture with general revelation, that general revelation cannot provide what scripture itself can, um, especially in as it relates to redemptive revelation. And um, for me, at least in my study, I used um, Dr. Waldron's book, uh, 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith, a modern exposition. Um, And he talks about this, um, that uh, redemptive revelation is necessary for salvation. uh, But he does say, um, that people are not saved outside, uh, uh, they were not saved outside of uh, uh, redemptive revelation. However, the scriptures are not absolutely necessary um, universally. It, as we see in the Old Testament, there were people who were saved, but they didn't have the scriptures necessarily. Um, I guess you could, you could take Abraham as an example. God revealing himself redemptively to Abraham, saying, you know, go to this place where you've never been before, um, and I will make you a great nation, essentially. And he believed God and he was counted as righteous. God gave him redemptive revelation. And, and even, um, I think it's in Galatians, Paul says that the gospel was even preached to Abraham. Um, but he didn't have scripture written down um, as we do today. So uh, scripture is necessary for us um, because it, in, in our time, in our place, and where God has us, um, this is where, uh, how he has chosen to reveal himself. Um, because we, we can't be saved outside of some sort of redemptive revelation from God, you know, just looking at the trees or looking at creation, although it points to God is not going to save you. Exactly. I do. I want to point something very interesting out actually in regards to, um, Abraham and the scripture from, uh, Galatians chapter three, verse eight and the scripture sure foreseeing that god would justify the gentiles by faith preach the gospel to abraham beforehand saying in you all nations shall be blessed so while the scripture itself it wasn't written down obviously it was god speaking um god's word his written word is um so identified with him that it could it could be said that the scripture actually was preaching to Abraham, which is a very interesting concept to, to think about. But um, yes, obviously we see people, even, even in Jesus' day, when um, Jesus is preaching, obviously that's not the written word, the scriptures, and yet people are getting saved by his preaching, the thief on the cross being an example there. Yeah, and I, I think we see that um, even here. It says, therefore it pleased the Lord at sundry times and diverse manners to reveal himself, like we see with Abraham, and declare his will unto his church, and afterward for the better preserving and propagating the truth. So it was like um, God is preaching his word or, or preaching um, redemptive revelation to people, but for the better preserving of it for us, it's written down in the scriptures. Exactly. And um, Romans 15.4, if I can call that up real quick. Um, well, we're just going to read it from the King James because that's what came up. Uh, says this uh, very well. For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning. Um, so talking about the scriptures, saying that whatever was written before was written for us. Mm-hmm. Um, so obviously the events transpired. God said the things that he said, but it's it's written for our benefit. 
Right. That's exactly right. Yeah. Cause how are we going to know unless God speaks directly to us or through a, you know, a different means, we're not going to know who he is. Um, exactly. And the scriptures are the means by that. And that really, and Dr. Waldron even says, uh, this is page 33 in that book. Now he says each of its seven major assertions, he's talking about chapter one, articulated in the outline above, contradicts a, co- a corresponding Roman Catholic dogma. Further, in two instances, at least, paragraphs one and six, the radical Anabaptist claims of direct revelation and the gift of prophecy um, are denied. So with chapter uh, right here in paragraph one, we see that there is no direct revelation anymore. God has chosen to reveal himself to his scriptures. Um, this would be an anti-continuationist um, view for sure, that everything we need to know for faith and practice is contained in the scriptures, and anything outside of that um, in terms of revelation is no, is false, essentially. So before we uh, move on, I do have to read, obviously, from the uh, the classic verse for the of scripture we can uh discuss that so uh that would be second timothy 3 16 and 7 and 17 uh give me a second to call that up and apparently we're going to read from the king james again um all scripture is given by inspiration of god and is profitable for doctrine for reproof for reproof excuse me for correction and for instruction in righteousness, so that the man of God might be complete, furnished for every good work. Um, so the purpose of the scripture is that we, well, he's, uh, Paul is writing to Timothy here. So um, there's an argument that some people might make that, oh, this is just for the clergy, essentially. But if it's if it's sufficient for the clergy, it should also be sufficient for us um, in that it it prepares a man for every good work so if it if it can do that, what else uh, do we need in life uh, to um, be able to do god's will right yeah and yeah that's that's a good point um I think paul's primary view here is is definitely the man of God because he's speaking to a pastor. Um, and the man of God traditionally in scripture is referring to the one who's preaching the word, even in the old Testament, the prophets were called the man of God and they brought the word of God to the people. Um, but yeah, that, that certainly, um, that certainly would apply to us. The scriptures are sufficient. They do bring us those things that are absolutely needed for, uh, for faith and practice and anything outside of that is simply, um, is simply false. If we're going to hold it up to the same standard as scripture. Um, so we have to, and that's really where you see the continuationists going wrong. And, and um, you'll, you'll see guys like Michael Brown who will, um, you know, say, yes, I believe that, you know, I don't believe that anything's being added to scripture, but they still believe or you'll still confess that revelation is still continuing in some way or prophecy or, or whatever it is. Um, if you're going to hold those things on par with God's word, um, you have to inevitably say that there is some sort of continuing revelation um, that is being given to us outside of scripture. Um, it, it's very hard to say that, um, you know, it's, it's, I, I think it'd be impossible to consistently say that a canon is closed if you're still saying that God is revealing his word to us in different ways. Yeah, exactly. 
essentially they're they're setting up almost two levels of god's word where oh right. this is this is what we can keep in the bible but this over here it's it's revelation it's god's word but we can't put it in the bible and the right would be, well well why what's what's different about this right then it's not then god's word is not really sufficient anymore is it no yeah, if there's if there's needed extra revelation, like like say the Mormons have in order to restore the church, then God's word was not sufficient in the first place. Right. Exactly. All right. Uh, was there any other points you wanted to make before we uh, moved on, Dan? No, I I think um, I think we've covered that one. All right. In that case, we'll move on to paragraph four. Uh, the authority of the Holy Scripture for which it ought to be believed, dependeth not upon the testimony of any man or church, but wholly upon God, who is truth itself, the author thereof. Therefore, it is to be received because it is the word of God. Um, and that's, that's obviously a very, um, I'd say, controversial statement. Um, I don't know. What do you, what do you think, Dan? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, what, what the what is being said here is essentially that the scriptures are not dependent or their authority is not dependent on a church. So this is flatly, um, this clearly speaks against Roman Catholicism's view, their ecclesiology essentially saying that, okay, the, the, the church has the final authority and faith and practice essentially scripture does not. And this is completely turning that on its head and just saying, no, we need to accept it. Not just that. Yes, it's scripture, but, its author is truth itself. So we should accept it as authoritative based on that. Exactly. So that, that changes. I mean, it says it's to be received because it's God's word. It comes from him directly. So therefore it has, you know, the ultimate authority when it comes to um, how we are to live, how we're to carry our practices in the church. Um, so yeah, I mean, it, it completely turns that on its head. Yeah, exactly. And, um, you run into to trouble with with Rome, Roman Catholics, because they'll they'll say things like, "Well, how do you know the the Bible is authoritative, or how do you know that the uh, the Bible is true?" Obviously, you need something outside of it to prove it, because otherwise it'd be circular. You can't appeal to the Bible. Um, so that's why you need Rome. But that really just pushes the problem a, a step back, essentially, because then oh, yes. you have to ask why well how do i know rome is true and at one point i had a roman catholic say oh well you just take that by faith and it's <laughs> it's like well you you haven't set it, solved the problem here <laughs> um if if you we can't take the scriptures on their own authority we can neither can we take rome on its own authority they either if Rome is self-authenticating somehow, then why can't the scriptures be self-authenticating? I don't think it fundamentally solves the problem. The problem is solved when you recognize God is the highest authority. There is nothing higher to appeal to. I can appeal to subordinating authorities to confirm the truthfulness of something. Um, For example, I might confirm, oh yeah, the Bible is accurate. Look at this uh, archeological evidence it it fits with what we see in the new testament or whatever but that can't prove the bible that can only confirm it um if god is truth 
then we have to accept it as this is the final authority. There is nothing greater to appeal to. Yeah, that's a really good point um, that, that you bring up there about the Catholic Church really pushing the problem back. Um, and I think this is where people from, you know, kind of diving into logical fallacies. If you want to talk about circular reasoning, um, there's a difference in arguing circularly from an ultimate authority and arguing circularly from a lesser authority. We would, it's a logical fallacy to argue from a lesser authority, but not from the ultimate authority because you can't go any higher than that. It's like when people um, argue from logic, you know, if, if that's the ultimate authority and you're assuming something is true because it's self-evidently true through logic, um, then you are being circular implicitly because you are assuming logic without proving logic. However, you have to assume it because that is the ultimate authority for reason. But that's, that, that's not a fallacy because um, it's self-evidently true. So it's, um, it, and that kind of goes with apologetics as well and, and with the scriptures. But yeah, that's, that's a good point. The, the Catholic hasn't really solved that problem at that point. They've just simply made the problem, um, they just simply pushed the authority back. Um, and, and they're really arguing from a lesser authority because unless you're going to say that the church supersedes God, um, you, you're still falling into that fallacy at that point. You're not actually um, solving the, the problem. But we don't have to worry about that because we're saying that God is the author of the scriptures and therefore it has the same authority. It carries that authority because it comes directly from him. Therefore we're not being circular in our reasoning because this is the ultimate authority that we appeal to. Exactly. Yeah. All right. Uh, do you want to move on to paragraph five then? Yep. Sounds good. All right. Paragraph five. We may be moved and induced by the testimony of the church of God to an high and relevant esteem of the Holy scriptures and the heaviness of the matter the efficacy of the doctrine and the majesty of the style, the consent of all the parts, the scope of the whole, which is to give all glory to God, the full discovery it makes of the, the only way of man's salvation and many other incomparable excellencies and entire perfections thereof are arguments by which it doth abundantly evidence itself to be the word of God. Yet notwithstanding our full persuasion and our assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority thereof is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit bearing witness by and with the word in our hearts. So this is basically an extension of the previous uh, paragraph, the previous paragraph saying that we know it's true because it's the word of God. And then, well, then how, what specifically do you how do you know that it's the word of god and the way i like to describe it um well at least with uh the old versus the new testaments is that the old testament is a lock with 900 million pins in it and there's only one key that can fit it and that's that's jesus essentially because he is the fulfillment of all prophecy all of the old testament mm -hmm. and that's and that's one because you, you look everywhere you see jesus in every corner of the old testament it's like how how could this possibly be if this was just the creation of men living over two thousand years ago it's it's, it's impossible um, this could only be a work of god and there are many other ways in which the scripture evidences itself that it is true for example it's it's 
perfect moral character. I know a lot of people would dispute that, obviously. Right. Uh, oh, the Bible promotes slavery. You know, yeah, ex- or whatever. exactly. Or they, they hate the morality of uh, God. But the more I study it, the more I see its, its perfections and its morality. And I'm absolutely amazed by it. In all ways, the Holy Scriptures do evidence themselves to be the Word of God. Yeah, yeah. And um, uh, one thing that Waldron talks about, um, especially if you want to talk about the authority of the New Testament, um, I guess which would point to its authentication as well, is the basis that the New Testament has um, or deriving its authority from the Old Testament scriptures. And that's, uh, we see this with um, with the, uh, when Paul talks to Timothy about um, you know, you've talked, you've been well-versed in the old Testament. The word of God is, is complete. It's, it's sufficient. And he's obviously primarily talking about the old Testament. Um, but he's probably, he's talking about scriptures, nature in general. So it's self-authenticating because it's the word of God. And these things are based on what we've, we've been taught in the scriptures in, from the old Testament. And this is just building upon that. Um, and we're speaking from God on that authority. And so we see this, um, this self-authentication if you will within the scriptures um and uh so yeah waldron's point about um its argument for authority i think kind of ties into the its authentication as well the scriptures self-authenticate it's consistent with itself mm-hmm. um you're right jesus uh, really is the center of of uh, the scriptures and redemptive history we see in the old testament new testaments revolving around him redeeming his people glorifying god in that um but I, I think, too, this self-authentication um, also goes to the heart of Roman Catholicism, because if the scriptures are self-authenticating, you don't need another body external telling you that it is or isn't. Um, and Calvin actually makes a point. This is from Walden's book as well. Calvin said, um, quote, but with regard to the question, how shall we be persuaded of, it, of its divine original unless we have recourse to the decree of the church? This is just as if anyone should inquire how shall we learn to distinguish light from darkness, white from black, sweet from bitter? For the scripture exhibits as clear evidence of its truth as white and black things do of their color or sweet and bitter things of their taste. So it's self-authenticating um, on itself. And I think when people try to, especially, uh, you know, those outside of Christianity who would attack the authenticity of the Bible, they're really imposing their own standards on it. How in the world are you supposed to know what is a, what the standard for authenticity for a book that is not, that does not come from a naturalistic, uh, naturalistic means, you know, you have to use the standards that are in that book, um, to actually authenticate itself. Um, otherwise you're not really, not really being truthful at that point. Um, but yeah. All right. Uh, move on to the last paragraph then. Yep. The last paragraph that we're going to discuss which is paragraph six. Uh, all right. Um, the whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith and life is either expressly set down or necessarily contained in the scriptures unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelation of the spirit or traditions of men. Nevertheless, we acknowledge the inward illumination of the Spirit of God to be necessary for the saving understanding of such things as are revealed in the Word, and that there are some circumstances concerning the worship of God 
and the government of the church common to human actions and societies, which are to be ordered by the light of nature and Christian prudence, according to the general rules of the word, which are always to be observed. Yeah, so this is really, I think this is um, um, really, again, talking about the sufficiency of scripture as it, as we talked about before. Um, but really, I think just kind of expanding upon it, um, that God, um, that there are certain things in scripture that are not necessarily contained in it, um, that when we're talking about the sufficiency of scripture, we're not saying that scripture um, contains every single item, ex- literally, that we need um, to live. It's not a biology book. It's not a math book. Um, but it has everything we need for salvation. And I think that's what is being talked about here. Um, yeah. We acknowledge the inward elimination of the Spirit of God to be necessary for the saving understanding of such things as revealed under the Word, and that are some circumstances concerning the worship of God, government, church, common human actions, be ordered in the light of nature and Christian prudence. So there are some things that the scriptures don't explicitly talk about that we can. Um, based on the principles given in scripture that we are able to, uh, to live out in light of the principles given. Um, so there is some Christian liberty, very loose, and I use that term carefully, um, that is given here um, to where as long as we're in the principles of scripture, if it doesn't explicitly say it, then you know, we can use prudence to, um, to give those things out, like church practice. You know, the Bible doesn't say whether you should have a pulpit or not. However. Um, you know, it's consistent with orderly worship. It's consistent. It, you know, elevates the preaching of the word of God. So in light of those principles given, you know, we can have a pulpit in our church. Um, so, yeah, I think it, it's important to understand what sufficiency is and what sufficiency isn't when it comes to the scriptures. Yes. Um, so I, Specifically concerning um, the uh, not adding um, any traditions of men, I did want to read from Mark here. This is going to be Mark chapter 7. Let's see, starting at verse 5. Then the Pharisees and scribes asked him, this is them talking to Jesus, why do you your why do your disciples not walk according to the traditions of the elders but eat bread with unwashed hands he answered and said to them well did isaiah prophecy of you hypocrites as it is written this people honors me with their lips but their heart is far from me and in vain they worship me teaching as doctrines the commandments of men um and then skipping to verse nine real quick He said to them, all too well, you reject the commandment of God that you may keep your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, if a man says to his father or mother, whatever profit you might have received from me is korban, that is a gift to God, then you no longer let him do anything for his father or mother making the word of God of no effect through your tradition, which you handed down. So Jesus here is explicitly condemning the Pharisees as, as he uh, quotes from Isaiah's teaching as doctrines, the commandments of men. Um, And this is extremely important. We are not to add to anything to the word of God. This explicitly receives the condemnation of Jesus here 
Um, and I've heard specifically Roman Catholics argue, well, it's not talking about all traditions, it's just talking about um, unbiblical ones. And um, that sort of leads into the, my, my next probing question. How do you know? How would you know if something is an unbiblical tradition or not? If, if uh, a Mormon comes to me and they have traditions about getting married in temples and such, well, how do I, how do I know any of that's true or not? It once again points me back to the scriptures because that is the sure word of faith um, to confirm whether or not a tradition is of men or not. Um, so once again, the Roman Catholic sort of really hasn't dealt fundamentally with the issues. Uh, we, we cannot add to what God has said. God is the only one who is able to determine what worship is appropriate, um, how we are to be saved, all these things. And there's only one spot today that we can find that. And that's in his infallible word. Yeah, and and we even see, like you said, they haven't they haven't solved the problem. Even with um, the current pope, the confusion <laughs> that he has caused, um, especially I think with his um, ecumenicalism, you know, trying to bring all these different faiths together and appear to be a unified whole, all the while you're the one who's supposed to be declaring to the church what the scriptures mean and what um, the scriptures mean for the church today. Uh, but you're ultimately causing confusion. I mean, and if you put your ultimate authority in an infallible man, that's what you get. There's, there's not going to infallible man. Yes. Uh, right. <laughs> supposedly infallible man. <laughs> <laughs> yep. um, which I, I think many Roman Catholics realize just how fallible Pope Francis is, but that's neither here nor there. Yeah. Which I mean, to our point here doesn't, you know, we have an infallible rule of faith and practice. You have exactly. to, you know, you guys have to deal with, an infallible man who's tossed to and fro by um, whatever he feels like that day. You know, he wakes up and he feels like I'm going to do this and, and he does it. So, um, but yeah. Um, so I think that gives us a really good basis um, as we go through the confession. You know, we, we're going to, next week we're going to be talking, going through uh, chapter two of God and the Holy Trinity. Um, so we're going to be talking about divine simplicity um, and as it relates to uh, to that doctrine, the Trinity, some, and who God is, um, but having a firm understanding of the scriptures themselves, where is that grounded in? Um, I, I think it's going to be helpful for next week, because as it says in paragraph four of chapter one, it says, um, but of holy upon God, who is truth itself? You know, and what does that term even mean? What okay, God is truth itself. Why does that matter? Well, that, that's what we're going to talk about next week. But having a firm ground in the nature of scripture um, will help us, I think, as we, you know, we, we pull these doctrines from the scriptures, and then understanding who God is will also inform um, our doctrine of scripture and help us to have a, a firm grasp on its, um, on its author um, and its authority as we, as we go through our confession. All right. Sounds excellent. Thank you for joining us, everybody. We'll uh, be, Lord willing, back on here next week, and we'll be going through Chapter 2 of the Confession. See you all later.